Welcome to Season 2 of Window Dressing, American Trash and National Treasures. It's raining again in Los Angeles, which sets the mood for this week's episode. This week, I discuss the most well-known and reviled femme fatale in film history, Phyllis Dietrichson, played by one of the most well-respected and loved actresses in American film, Barbara Stanwyck. The 1944 film noir Double Indemnity is one of the shiniest, most moneyed film noirs produced in its time. The film is based on James M. Kane's book of the same name. The story itself is inspired by a true crime that is so American it smells like apple pie and fresh blood. In 1927, Ruth Snyder, a 32-year-old American housewife, murdered her husband, Albert Snyder, with the help of a corset salesman named Judd Gray. The pair were executed in 1928, 10 months after the original crime. Ruth had made seven attempts on her husband's life before it finally stuck. She had convinced her husband to purchase life insurance with an extra payout if he died of a violent act. The insurance salesman who aided in the sale went to jail for fraud before Albert Snyder's death. It was Judd Gray who helped Ruth commit the crime. It was a brutal slaying that took place in the Snyder home. Ruth staged her own attack after the murder to make it look like a robbery gone wrong. It didn't take long for authorities to see through her faked attack and pin the crime on her and her lover. She blamed Judd and vice versa. The couple were both executed after a star-studded media circus trial that included D.W. Griffith as a spectator. A photograph taken at the execution of Ruth Snyder was plastered on the Daily News the following day. It was the most sensational photograph to be printed in the history of print media in the United States up to that point. It set the stage for a tabloid culture that became the mainstay of an industry that would come to glamorize Miss Snyder and her crime a couple of decades later, with lasting effects to this day. We have that photograph to thank for the culture that produced the shaved head pictures of Britney Spears before her 5150 and the -the up-the-skirt shots of Lindsay Lohan, not to mention the crime scene photos of Sharon Tate. This is America. We love true crime, skewered women, and a good scandal. Phyllis Dietrichson deserves a better defense than Ruth Snyder received. I like to think of Phyllis not just as an extension of Ruth Snyder, but also of Barbara Stanwyck's character, also named Barbara, in the 1931 film Ten Cents a Dance. The film was named after the song of the same title that was a huge success the year prior. The phrase refers directly to a legit occupation, but also acts as a euphemism for prostitution. Dime a dance girls waited around like cattle in the 1920s and 30s to dance with any man with a dime who wanted them. Like any dance hall hostess, they often turn tricks out of financial necessity. After all, a dime isn't very much, even in 1931. Stanwyck plays Barbara O'Neill in Ten Cents a Dance, a young working girl who is both naive and worldly. She falls in love with her neighbor, Eddie Miller, played by Monroe Osley. He is a college man who can't pay his rent. Barbara pays his way with money she is given by a wealthy admirer, Bradley Carlton, played by Ricardo Cortez. 
Barbara gets Eddie a job at Bradley's company, and the young couple marry. Eddie cheats and steals and eventually calls his wife a whore. Barbara's left desperate and is forced to grow up and choose the wealthy Bradley over her ne'er-do-well husband. This choice is sugared in the film, but when looked at from a broader perspective, it is clear that she is forced to give up love for money. In this case, the money choice is also kind and filled with love and respect for her, but we all know that isn't always the case. Many people think that film noir's femme fatale is an archetype born out of the unexpected consequences of World War II, specifically male resentment of women's gained power in the workforce while men were away fighting. I think that rage that created the femme fatale was visible decades earlier. The failures in the gains of the suffragette movement and the depression are major factors. The expansion of women's place in society that was taking hold culturally in the 1920s came with the retraction of options for women after the Depression. Women are aligned ideologically with the American dream just as much as men are. We want and feel it is our right to have freedom and agency, freedom and agency that is not only promised to us as individuals, but also sold to us as consumers. When we weren't allowed to independently act, bitterness and a focus on controlling fate manifested in representations of us. The failures of the American dream and the underlying belief in it are at the heart of any story produced in this country, especially ones starring Barbara Stanwyck. Double Indemnity's Phyllis Dietrichson could be Barbara O'Neill a decade later. Phyllis is stuck with a man she never loved, whom she married for security. More importantly than her misery is the rage that making this choice cultivated in her heart. This is what makes her character great. She is unhappy, and her unhappiness is 100% a symptom of her sex and the lack of options, position, and respect she was allotted because of it. What would you do in 1944 if you were Phyllis, or in 1928 if you were Ruth? Perhaps you would murder your husband, too. I know I think about it now in 2024, and I'm not even married. This point also hits hard when trying to describe to people what a femme fatale is. I know I have given definitions on this podcast before, but here's another. A femme fatale is an embodiment of the rage that comes along with mistreatment based on sex. This is why the cultural indicator of a femme fatale, Phyllis Dietrichson, is based on a real woman, a real crime, and a real American story. The rage is in our bones, and for good reason. Double indemnity is the height of housewife murder plots. Stanwyck lends considerable credibility and, dare I say, relatability to the role of Phyllis Dietrichson. A beautiful woman trapped and mistreated by her dumb husband and saddled with his young and lovely daughter from a previous marriage. Fred McMurray plays the unreliable Patsy, Walter Neff, with a mild incompetence that really sells it. Edward G. Robinson found his stride in this film as a through-and-through, albeit slightly racist, good guy. Robinson plays Barton Keyes, Walter's boss and claims adjuster at Pacific All-Risk Insurance Company. 
The story and the script are by James M. Kane. The voiceover parts for Walter are nearly verbatim from the book, which was originally a seven-part series printed in the 1930s, a few years post The Real Crime. Director and co-writer of the script, Billy Wilder, helped keep the verbal pacing of the source material with a visual translation that wears well. Costumes for this movie are done by classic Hitchcock costumer Edith Head. Phyllis's gowns, and in one case, her ankle bracelet, are indeed a layer of psychological strata befitting the role and the woman. Phyllis's stepdaughter and child sex pot, Lola, played by Jean Heather, also benefits from a wardrobe that accentuates her beauty, which adds considerably to her boring brunette image. It's funny how a man only feels guilt over an attractive bore and not an ugly one. Let me clarify that Lola is not a woman. She is a child playing at being a woman, meaning she is innocent, moldable, and still looking at men as trusted. This is what makes her obnoxious to me and sexy to men like Walter Neff. It isn't Lola's fault. She's just a product of the patriarchy, just as we all are. But unlike Phyllis, her stepmother, Lola not only sides with the enemy, she enables his worst quality, passing off his accountability onto a wicked woman, such as Phyllis. And just to be clear, I don't think Phyllis is wicked. I think she's righteous. The film begins with a confession intended to be a posthumous one on a foggy Los Angeles night in the downtown office building of the Pacific All-Risk Insurance Company. Walter begins to tell his own story on tape for his boss. The story starts when Walter is on his way to a Spanish-style mini-mansion made in all in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. His goal is to get a renewal on an auto insurance policy currently held by Mr. Dietrichson and his wife. Walter is immediately taken in by the beauty of Mrs. Phyllis Dietrichson. Phyllis stands at the top of the staircase landing, slightly back, so as not to be fully witnessed by her young and handsome houseguest. Her hair is bleached blonde, and she is wearing only a towel. After this first meeting, the two fall in love, at least enough to plot the murder and subsequent insurance payout of Phyllis's husband. The film's namesake refers to the type of payout the couple is seeking as a reward for their crime. Double indemnity is the term for when an insurance claim pays double or triple for a specific type of accidental death. Their love happens quickly, but Walter falters on nearly every step he takes towards Phyllis. During the course of planning the murder of Mr. Dietrichson, Walter takes a shine to Phyllis's stepdaughter, Lola, which is packaged as his guilt, not his lust. Lola is, surprise, surprise, a younger brunette. The innocent and most definitely pretty girl pulls the heartstrings of the corrupted Walter Neff, proving, of course, that Walter doesn't love Phyllis and perhaps is a predator with a predilection for murder. Phyllis happens to be stringing along Lola's boyfriend for her own purposes, simultaneous to Walter's betrayal. Phyllis's betrayal is much more deliberate and with purpose. 
Walters is driven by failure, ego, and more specifically, a reprisal of his role as a patriarchal man, a role which Phyllis's very existence threatens. Walter corrects his course, but not without significant damage to the illusion of loyalty. Walter doesn't prove to be a great choice for a partner in crime. While he commits the murder and plans the disposal, he also double-crosses without forethought. He shoots Phyllis as she confesses her love and then is caught recording his confession while bleeding out slowly from a shoulder wound. Pretty pathetic. In the movie, they made it seem that Phyllis had never loved Walter, but in real life, I'm talking about Ruth now, I'm not convinced of that fact. I am barely convinced of it in the film version. It seems to me Phyllis's act, premeditated murder of her husband, was a desperate move. It doesn't necessarily negate love for her partner in crime. The first scene I'm going to talk about in depth is Walter and Phyllis's introduction. It begins with a knock at her door on a sunny Southern California day. Walter is led into the house by the maid. Once inside, the sun disappears and Spanish Gothic wrought iron work and dark heavy upholstery fill the space. Phyllis stands at the top of the stairs, dressed in only a white towel, looking like a glowing nymph. Walter asks to see her husband. She says he isn't in. But after Phyllis realizes that Walter is an insurance salesman, or perhaps she is just bored, she says she will get dressed and meet him downstairs shortly. Moments later, Phyllis descends the stairs in a white dress that is ruffled at the collar and cuffs. She wears a large gold cuff-style bracelet over the sleeve of her dress that matches a large gaudy cocktail ring worn on her right hand. Her shoes are a cross between a house slipper and a dancing girl's pumps. They are gold slingbacks with big puffs on the toes. The look is topped off with a slender gold ankle bracelet. Her legs are bare. This is significant in the 1940s and she is still completing the buttoning up of her dress on her descent down the stairs. Walter, ever the fucking fool, eats the sight of her up like candy. I learned from this film to always wear white for any significant event that a man is involved in. They really think you're angelic and virginal. In fact, it's the subconscious virginal aspect that creates the attraction and subsequent power shift, at least for men like Walter. The two sit. Phyllis crosses her legs, drawing attention to the delicate anklet and the legs that it leads to. Walter says, That's a honey of an anklet you're wearing. Phyllis uncrosses her legs coyly and attempts modesty. The effect of her manner at this point is so perfect, I cannot articulate it satisfactorily. Let's just say that Stanwyck wins hearts and minds with a smirk. The entertainment and joy she gets from affecting him is gold. It is her movements in this moment that lend glamour to the quick wit of the script. No one else could have played this role so well. She stands and starts to lead Walter to the door, saying her husband will be home tomorrow evening and he is welcome to stop by then. Walter indicates that he doesn't care to speak to Mr. Dietrichson anymore and has, in fact, lost interest in the whole idea. 
Phyllis stops and turns to Walter and says, There's a speed limit in the state, Mr. Neff. The little amount of light in the dark house seems to only exist on Phyllis's face and hair. The light emanates from her cheeks and sets her hair aglow. Walter responds, How fast was I going, officer? Phyllis says, I should say about 90. She leads him the rest of the way to the door, knowing he is hooked. In a later scene, Walter stands alone in his dark and drab apartment, pacing and smoking, after another meeting with Phyllis. She brought up the idea of accident insurance, and Walter has finally caught on to the idea. He turned her down flat, but as he says in his voiceover, the hook was too strong. Just as the idea was exiting his lips, Phyllis knocks at the door. Phyllis stands in the doorway wearing a wool trench coat with era-specific shoulder pads. Her hands are in her pockets and her belt is cinched tightly. She says she is returning his hat. She clearly is not, but the guise is a game Walter is happy to play along with. He invites her in. He takes her coat and she stands uncomfortably close to him, wearing a white sweater and black slacks. She says... It's raining, as if the inclement weather is code for a deviation from the normal rules of behavior. In Los Angeles, it just might be. He asks her what she wants, and she says, I want you to be nice to me like the first time. I love this line because it clearly points to the power dynamic that shifts back and forth. She is stating that she wants that power back. She pretends to leave, but he stops her with a kiss, and we know she is back in control. The theme of wearing white to get one's way continues. Stanwick, and by extension costumer Edith Head, is not the first to notice and exploit the power of this snowy hue. Adrian, costume designer for MGM during the glamorous years, long knew the power of wings on a woman. The advantage of Head's designs in this film is the simplicity. It really works on Stanwyck's brand of wearable glamour and her modern sensibility. A later iteration of this kind of simple and wearable elegance is Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. The costume designers of that film were greatly influenced by Head's designs. Stone adopted a lot of Basic Instinct's fashions into her personal style, helping to carry the femme fatale iconography into the modern era. Post-murder of Mr. Dietrichson, Walter gets a visit from the now-orphaned Lola. She shows up at Walter's office to tell him her fears and suspicions about her stepmother Phyllis's involvement in her mother and now her father's death. Lola is wearing an oh-so-demure morning suit, befitting a 16-year-old beauty, although she could be 18, but an innocent 18. The suit is made of a thick-fitted black wool, with covered button closure up to her neck and a small velvet collar and bow. The bow is small enough to be ladylike and large enough to whisper coquette. Lola is beautiful, but her beauty is wasted from her position as an admirer of men like Walter Neff and her father. 
She looks up to men like that, whereas Phyllis not only doesn't lend them authority by looking up to them, but she actively takes authority from them. As an illustration of what side Lola is on, I will quote her opening words to Walter in his office. She says, I'm not crazy. I'm not hysterical. I'm not even crying. Her knee-jerk need to separate herself from all the simpering qualities of her kind, meaning women, is not only gross, but also immediately aligns her with the oppressor. Walter's response is quick, hard, and without awareness. He is falling for her. I would be impressed by Lola's skills if she weren't so completely unaware of her allegiance to the patriarchy. And just as a quick reminder, hysterical means roaming uterus. Lola is, in fact, crying when she speaks to Walter, but that's not the effective part of her spiel. It's her innocence. That unawareness I spoke of that puts her in allegiance to him and him in control of her. That kind of innocence allows Walter to be only what Lola sees him as. This new perspective allows Walter to shed his accountability and place the blame on Mame. I mean Phyllis. This way, he can fuck the blonde and the brunette without any care in the world. Fuck you, Walter Neff, and your child bride too. Walter may not be sleeping with Lola, at least not on film, but he does take her to dinner, literally wines and dines her, including one romantic evening at the Hollywood Bowl. He justifies his dating up the daughter of his murder victim and stepdaughter of his lover by saying in voiceover that he is just trying to keep Lola's mouth shut about the things she suspects of Phyllis. I and Phyllis, when she finds out of their little romance, sees through that. In Walter and Phyllis's last scene together, she makes her way around her Spanish Gothic home, switching off all the lights in preparation for her planned rendezvous with Walter. They both have a double cross of equal measure in mind. She is wearing a white, long-sleeve silk jumpsuit with padded shoulders and ruching at the bust. She wears it belted with the same large gold ring and bracelet from their initial meeting. Her house slipper-style pumps glide across the large tile floor as she takes a silk scarf and gun in hand and hides it under a chair cushion. She sits, lights a cigarette, and waits for Walter to walk in. He comes in and sits on the edge of his seat across from her and starts with a song and dance speech about saying goodbye. He confronts Phyllis about her relationship with Lola's boyfriend, including her plot to pin the murder on him, but he fails to mention that he has been out with Lola nearly every night this week. Unapologetically, she listens and smokes her cigarette. He says the police are going to come and walks around to the window and peeks through the blinds. When his back is turned to Phyllis, she shoots him in the shoulder. He says... You can do better than that, can't you? He walks towards the now gun-toting Phyllis, who is standing in the middle of the room. The Venetian blind's shadow falls diagonally on the wall behind her. She lets her wrist go weak as he approaches her. She says that she didn't love him until just now. Walter says, 
Sorry, baby, I'm not buying. He shoots her dead while holding her in his arms, and suddenly that love becomes a puddle of blood. I believe that Phyllis did love Walter, and in her last moment, she may have even believed that that kind of love was all there was. The reason I categorize what I imagine her to feel in that last moment of her life as love is that I think the world defines love for women as folding into place. Phyllis resisted folding because she knew her survival was all that mattered. I think in the moment before her death, when survival was removed from the equation, she was willing to fold into place. And that's why she said she really loved him and why I agree with her. But honey, that's not love. That's just a lost game of cards. Thank you for listening to Window Dressing, American Trash and National Treasures. Please like and subscribe to the podcast and follow me on Instagram at Window Dressing Podcast for more content. I will be back in two weeks with a new episode. I'm Madeline Jane Obel, and thank you again for listening.